Sunday. So uh, what we're going to do right now is we're going to get into the teaching this morning. If you guys have a Bible, why don't you open up to the book of Psalms, Psalm 145, tell you a little bit about what we're going to do. Then we will pray uh, and get to work. So we've been in a series uh, this whole year, which is we're calling the year biblical literacy, which as a church, we're reading through the Bible. Right now, we're kind of right in the region of the book of Isaiah. We've been reading chapter by chapter, verse by verse from Genesis to Revelation And what we did at the beginning of the year is we started a series of teaching series to help equip you to read the Bible. Number one, the first few weeks we looked at uh, some tools to help you uh, be equipped to know how to read Scripture, how to address Scripture, how to think about it. And then we went to another secondary series after that, which we just called The Story of God, which we looked at from literally from Genesis to Revelation in, I don't know, seven weeks, eight weeks or so, something like that, the entire Bible. And we were trying to look at sort of the bigger, what we call the meta-narrative, the overarching storyline of the Bible itself. And then what we're into right now is we're in a series that's called The Language of Faith because we recognize that every good story has vocabulary, right? If any Lord of the Rings fans? Both of you? Oh, Hi. Hi, fellow geeks. Like, we're all on the same team. Um, anyways, um, all right, every, or Star Wars, whatever. I mean, every epic narrative has its own unique language. And the Bible's no different than that. There, there is language that's unique to Scripture. To understand what the language is would help equip you to understand the Bible. It's one of the reasons why we decided to kind of take uh, another series of time and focus on a certain set of key words to try to make sense of what these words look mean, what they mean, what they look like. The first week we look at the word glory. Again, that's one of those kind of overrated or maybe under-recognized words. We looked at the word sin uh, two weeks ago. Last week we looked at the word holiness. Uh, today we're actually going to be looking at the word uh, worship. And again, when, and if I were to ask you, uh, what do you think about when you think of the word worship? Define worship for me. I think most of us, based upon how we've been shaped or culturally oriented, we tend to think of worship, for the most part, somewhere along the lines of that about 25-minute or 30-minute or like tonight, the 90-minute time in which we sing a bunch of songs to God. Now, you would not be wrong if you said that, but you would be grossly uh, missing the bigger picture of what worship is. Uh, Worship is far more than just a little segment that happens before a sermon. Worship is really is this radically complex and beautiful and big word that I would even say for the most part, the ancient Hebrew language, there's a number of words that we're going to look at here this morning that define or articulate or try to paint this picture of what worship really is all about. Now, um, we're going to look at about seven of them. There's a lot more, to be quite frank with you, as I was looking at this. Um, I can easily make this eight, maybe even 12. There's a handful of other words that we're not even going to get around time ways, time-wise to get into this. So in some ways, we're kind of scratching the surface. Um, if you want sort of another analogy of this, um, maybe you've heard sermons before about the multiple ways in which the word love is used in the Bible and how, for example, in the Greek language, there's at least four words that are used to describe the word love. So for us, you know, as English speakers, we have one word to describe a variety of experiences with things. So we might say, I love my wife, or I, would, my, I might say, hopefully you wouldn't say this, but I would say, I love my wife and I love my daughters. But I would also say, I, I love guacamole too. And I love ice cream and I love chocolate and I love to surf. And so we, we use this one word to describe a variety of experiences, encounters with a variety of things. And, and in some ways, uh, that, that, you know, we, we don't even think 
about that. But in the Greek New Testament, there is at least four words to describe what we would describe as the word love. So they would have the word storge, which is one way to describe it. Another word is the word phileo. We even get the word um, Philadelphia, a city of brotherly love. Another word is uh, the word eros. We get the word erotic from. This is kind of a love that has to do with sexuality or sensuality. Another word is the word agapeo or agape. We would call this like a self-sacrificial or giving oneself over entirely to somebody else type of a love or a covenantal type of a love. There's four words that the New Testament would use to describe this particular word for love. But the same is true, I would say, for the word worship. So if we only think of worship in terms of an expression of singing songs, then I would say we have a a grossly shallow uh, understanding of what the word worship is. So my hope today would be to try to explore Scripture and allow Scripture to form our understanding as to what worship is all about. And then really at the end of the day, the, the big idea behind this is to recognize that oftentimes when we come to the Bible, we oftentimes bring or we import our understandings onto Scripture. I would say, and I've been saying this for a long time, that's actually a a poor way to read the scripture. You don't read any other novel like that. You don't read any other scripture or narrative or storyline like that. But oftentimes we do that with the Bible. And I would suggest that when we import our own kind of, uh, I don't know, anemic understandings or definitions of particular words, we actually, I think, do, we don't treat the text with honor. I, I think we dishonor scripture. So I think a better way to do that is to allow Scripture to inform our understanding of certain words and then read Scripture with this renewed, informed mind and heart, ultimately, of of what these words mean. So with that being said, we're going to try to understand and hopefully unpack within the time frame that we have together this particular word, worship. And to do this, I thought it would be kind of fun to start off by reading a psalm that actually is going to, it has a lot of words in it uh, that are going to be basically subject matter for today. So why don't we all stand right now, and we're going to read uh, out of the Psalm 145. I'll read a handful of passages here. I'm not going to read the entire thing, um, but I'm just going to read a handful of this, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work. So Psalm 145, verse 1, starts off like this. A song of praise of David. Verse 1, he says, I will extol you, O God, my King, And I'll bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. And I'll praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness And they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. And they shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to us all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Let's pray. God, this is your word. And we read it. We ask you, God, that you would open our hearts, our minds, our thoughts And God, even our experiences, that you would help us to have a renewed understanding as to what this word worship means. And God, in doing so, I pray that we would enter into the fullness of of all that this means. That we would walk into a fresh new experience and understanding of worshiping you. So we commit this time in your hands and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what I want to do first, as we jump in, 
is I want to kind of give you a little bit of a working definition as we've been doing in the past few weeks. Uh, the word worship, the way I would kind of give this uh, definition would be something along these lines. Worship is the human response to God's initiative. So if you break that down, you think about it this way, it involves God doing something first, God entering in, God being the initiator, God doing something to basically kickstart the whole experience. And then what we do is we just respond to whatever it is that God's initiating. I would even go so far as to say that there is an opposite side or a counter form of worship that we would call idolatry, which is also kind of a similar type of experience. But anything that is not in the relationship of worshiping Yahweh or God, the creator, is what the Bible would describe as idolatry. So I want to focus mainly and primarily on this subject matter, the idea of worshiping God, and try to understand how this word plays out throughout the Old Testament. Again, like I said, there's a lot of different ways. Think of it as like a diamond. Again, I've never really held a very expensive diamond in my hand, but I'm told that you can take a diamond and if you have a skilled or trained eye, you can turn it, you can look at one element or side of it and then it's beautiful and you turn it again, you see another beautiful side or element of it, you turn it again. The same idea. It's one diamond, but it's multiple ways in which it shows forth bling, beautiful, glory, whatnot. whatnot. It's the same idea with this idea of worship. There's a variety of ways to think about this in which the ancient Hebrew writers had used words to describe this experience of responding, responding rightly, a human response back to what God has initiated. So with that, I thought it'd be kind of fun, first of all, to get into our very first word. And the very first word is actually the first word that I thought would be good to show. It's the very first time in the entire Bible that the word worship actually appears, which it's the book of Genesis chapter 22. I'll tell you, we'll geek out a little bit on this. Uh, I'll give you the Hebrew names and by way of just kind of having fun, I'm going to have you guys repeat it after me. So it's the first word that we're going to look at is the word shaka. Shaka, go ahead and say shaka, like shaka. It's not shaka though. Shaka, shaka, shaka. And it means to bow down, to prostrate oneself with face touching the ground before God in worship and or before idols. So there are experiences or times in the Old Testament where people would shaka before Idols, false gods. So again, it, one is worship to God. One is what we would call idolatry. So the very first time this particular word uh, worship that's translated from this particular Hebrew word, shakah, uh, appears is Genesis chapter 22. Some of you are familiar with the story um, by way of just uh, reiteration. It's the time in which God calls Abraham to go sacrifice his son. If you remember his story, Abraham had, he was basically promised this massive nation and uh, he finally has a son. And then God basically says to him, I want you to go take your son that, by the way, is going to be this massive nation and uh, go, go, go kill him. Now, again, there's a lot of barbarity that might be surrounding this. I don't really have time to kind of get into the backstory as to why. That perhaps before another time, there's other scholars and theologians that I think if, that would, uh, I'm happy to point you to if that is a point of contention or like what in the world or confusion or whatever. I'm happy to point you to those so you can listen to those and or have some information about that. But for now, what I want to really focus on is the action that Abraham does. So listen to the stories. We kind of jump into it. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, starts off like this. It says, Then God tested Abraham, and he said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains to which I shall tell you. Now again, in that ancient culture, it's a very patriarchal culture, means your future, everything that you have, your hope of the future, the legacy that you're going to leave, is 100% directly linked 
to your child, particularly your son. So what Abraham is facing is the potential cutting off of his entire future. It's not a small thing, right? This is a massively huge thing. It'd be kind of like to one of us saying, hey, I want you to give up the most important element of your entire life. Are you willing to lay that down? Well, Abraham was. I think this, this work is a little bit shocking. Abraham was willing to do, to walk this out, this path of obedience. And we're told that it goes on to say in verse 3, it's so Abraham rose up early in the morning, and he went to the place where God had told him. Verse 5, then Abraham then said to the young man, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there, and we will worship, and then we'll come back. So whatever's happening here, it's described by this Hebrew word, shakah, that whatever is happening, Abraham is shakahing, he's worshiping God. So Genesis chapter 18, verse 2, uh, gives us another little bit of a backstory or understanding of this particular word. Now, again, even though in the English this is not translated as the word worship, it does have the exact same Hebrew word. So listen to how Genesis chapter 18 verse 2 describes this. Uh, It says, and he lifted up his eyes and he looked and there were men that stood by him and they saw him and they ran to meet them from the tent door and they bowed themselves down to the ground. So whatever's going on here in in this scenario is that this particular guy gets on his hands and knees, face to the ground, as a way of showing incredible honor to this collection of people that are there at the door. Again, the general idea is to bow down, to prostrate oneself before superior and homage, before God, before worshiping false gods as well. So some of the things that we can take away or thinking about this, that the word shakah basically means to bow down. This could be either metaphorically or literally. One's life to lay down what one values in terms of possessions or anything else for the other person. So when you are laying your head to the ground in front of somebody that is greater than you, what happens? Like what happens when you put your head to the earth is you get dirty. It's a way, I mean, again, if you think about it in an ancient culture, you're basically saying, I'm willing to take the dirt because you're, you're great. Your, your presence is, is amazing. I'd rather be the one to take the dirt for you because your honor is greater than myself. And so I'll head to the ground type of a thing. In the context of Abraham, Abraham is taking what is most valuable to him, his son. And he's laying it down. He's being willing to be faithful to God and offer this great sacrifice to God. Uh, and again, obviously, you know, punchline of the story is God does not take a son. Abraham does not kill a son. So again, that's a story for another time. Um, but the point of the matter is that's what we take away from this particular word. It involves this idea of radical um, giving preference to somebody else. That's what we see. It's the very first mention of that particular word for worship in the Old Testament. It's the Greek or the Hebrew word shakah. The second word that we use that we're going to see that this is where we kind of get back into the Psalm, Psalm 145. So hopefully you guys have your Bibles open that. Uh, we're going to read a handful of passages out of that. Psalm 145, we begin to enter into this, the Psalm itself and look at the variety of words that are within a Psalm. So the first word that we come to in this psalm, which is you know, number two in our kind of ongoing list, is the Hebrew word tahila. Um, so how about we all say that? Geek out together? Uh, tahila. Tahila. Not like, like tequila minus the Q. Tahila. Um, the actual, like if you were to pluralize that word, it's the word tahilim. In fact, in the ancient Hebrew Bible, if you were to pick up a Hebrew Bible today, uh, for the psalms, right, it's, it's, it would not, you would not see a book that says psalms. You would see that if it's written in English. 
But if it was written in Hebrew, you would see a book that would say Tehillim. Because Tehillim is the plural of whatever this word is. And that's where I want to kind of focus our attention now to think about this particular word. Uh, Psalm 145 verse 1 starts off. It just simply says this. David's psalm of praise. So that phrase, we get three words in the English. Psalm of praise is that one Hebrew word, Tehillah. It's a word that basically describes an act of singing or declaring spontaneously sometimes about the excellence of, of another person or of another, declaring someone's renown, fame, or glory. And that's, that's exactly what follows in this psalm. So if, if you paid attention to that psalm, you realize that David, whoever's writing this psalm, obviously David, because he tells us it's David, he's, he's declaring the renown of God. Like you could not, if you dropped in from outer space and you heard this psalm, you, you could not help but think that whoever this guy's talking about must be someone pretty amazing. Because he's going up and down, using all sorts of words to articulate and adjectives to describe the renown, the greatness of whoever Yahweh is. Um, this is kind of what the word particularly means. So this is where it gets a little bit fun, because in the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, I'll read a couple of other passages of how this particular word plays in to give you some example of how we see this word is utilized within Scripture. So I like to think of it this way, as, as these spontaneous moments um, where you just let forth shouts of praise, um, honor, just being pouring forth from your lips upon another person, this spontaneity. Um, uh, in some ways, I almost even think of like when, when my wife gave birth and to my two daughters, in those moments, two different occasions, just, just what comes out of your mouth in these moments is just praise. There's no other way to describe it. It's not thought through up front. I didn't write something down. You just, all of a sudden, in, these, in this moment, you just speak forth what's in your heart, and it's just this moment of praise. That's what David's saying happened to him in the psalm as he writes this out. And then in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1-3, to I'll read this story. Just follow along. Listen. So the backstory is there's these tribes, and uh, like in ancient culture, these tribes would oftentimes war with each other. So these would be like the Moabites and Ammonites, and these were just you know, the tribal names, the tribal heads. So it says that the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Mennonites, they came against Jehoshaphat. He was the king of, of uh, Israel. And then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek God. So Jehoshaphat did what was very common experience for all of us, that when something bigger than you, something terrifying, faces you or confronts you, what happens? What's our... What's our gut level reaction we're fear we're afraid we're terrified like that happens that's what happens but the next question is is what do we do with that fear where do we let that fear take us for some we let that fear take us to really dark places we get terrorized we go into deep moments of anxiety or despair for some we turn to drugs or alcohol or other forms or other ways to sort of soothe or remove any feeling of of extreme worry, we find all sorts of other ways to sort of narcoticize ourselves against that reality. What we're told that Jehoshaphat does is he then, in the moment where he faces his great fear, it says, and he turns his heart over to God. So we're beginning to kind of see the, the stage being set as to what happens. It says again, verse 3, Jehoshaphat was afraid and he set his face to seek God. Now again, Jehoshaphat's a king, which means he's got responsibilities, big responsibilities. He's He's top cheese of his entire country. So he's got a lot of people that are depending upon him to make decisions. Um, it goes on to say in the story that then Jehoshaphat, verse 
18, later, later on down in the story, Jehoshaphat bowed his head and his face to the ground. Again, it's probably the word that we just read. And then Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korathites, they stood up to praise God. So these guys are the religious leaders. These are the ones that are responsible for the praise and the worship. Think of these as like priests over the people of Israel. So the rest of the Israel in this context, Jehoshaphat and a bunch of his people, they're on their faces. Then these religious leaders, they stand up. So you got a bunch of people on the ground, head to the ground, other people standing up, and they're beginning to offer praise. It says, and they stood up to praise the Lord, to praise God, the God of Israel. Now again, what's the backstory to all this? They just got really bad news that their camp is being surrounded by an angry mob of people that want to kill them. All right, so think, you're Jewish, living out in the wilderness. I don't know, maybe you got several hundred people, a couple thousand people, and then a bunch of Al-Qaeda or ISIS militants or insurgents surround you. You know what their intentions are. They're not good, obviously. And you're afraid, because that's the right response or the, uh, the natural response, what you're going to have. And what, they're, what they go on to do is they begin to turn this whole thing into this big, crazy, charismatic, Pentecostal revival meeting to worship God. It get, gets even better. Listen to this. It goes on to say in verse 20, it says, And then they rose up early in the morning, and they went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they had went out, Jehoshaphat stood, and he said, Hear me, O Judah, and all of you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Here's, here's his words of advice. Believe in Yahweh, your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets. In other words, believe the words that God has spoken through these people that have stood up to respond, represent God. He says, and you will have success. Verse 21, it says, and when he had taken the counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and to praise him uh, in holy attire. And then they went before the army and they said, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love, for his love endures forever. So again, imagine, here's this army, this military, uh, swords, shields, whatever it is, you know, sacred, tire, whatever it is. And you have this group that goes ahead of them and they're singing worship. So you got the worship band out front. They're like, we need a soundtrack to this incredible thing that's about to happen. Someone get a song going. Like, that's what happens. They begin to sing uh, and it gets even crazier. Listen to this, verse 22. So up until this point right now, is this a good strategy or a weird strategy? Be honest, it's the Bible. It's totally weird. It's It's a totally weird strategy. Nobody fights battles like this. It's okay. But listen to how it happens. Listen to how this plays out. And when they began to sing, here's our word, Tehillah. When they began to Tehillah and praise the Lord, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were all routed. Do you hear what just happened? What happens in this particular context, these people are afraid. They're worried about what's going to happen in their future. They're worried, no doubt, just like you and I, they're worried about what's going to happen to our land, what's going to happen to our people, what's going to happen to our children. If you're married, uh, what's going to happen to my wife? Uh, You're thinking all the worst things are going to potentially happen. Again, you have these savage enemies that are against you, and all of a sudden someone says, let's start singing worship to God. Let's tehila. Let's just honor and respect the Lord God Almighty. And all of a sudden, in that context, God steps in and says, I'll take care of it all. Do you understand that sometimes the most important thing that you and I need to do is not strategize how to take care of the issues that are facing us? 
oftentimes the very first thing that we do is we try to strategize. We try to figure out, we try to rig the system so that we can somehow come out on top and have success. And if we can't strategize, if we don't have the power to strategize, we just slump into despair and despondency. And nobody can stay in despair and despondency for too long because that's chaos. We can't stay in the status of chaos for too long because what happens is we need to do something to anesthetize our chaotic moments. So we turn to narcotics. We get drugs. We drink alcohol. We download porn. We do something to somehow numb the edge that we feel of anxiety that's gnawing at us. You guys follow? You guys doing good? Make sense? This goes against all conventional wisdom. And they say, let's worship God. And God takes care of them. For some of us, that's the most important thing we need to do. Just turn our hearts to God. To worship Him. To proclaim His name. To honor Him. To lift up a shout of praise to God because God is good. And let God do what God does. Which He rescues. He delivers. So that's the second word, to heal. I'm going to move on. The third word is the word room. Room. I'll say it together. One, two, three. Room. All right, there you go. There's the word. It means to raise up, to be high, to be lofty, to be exalted. It's the idea of lifting something up. But this word also appears throughout the Old Testament as well. Like in 2 Samuel, read a couple examples of this. This word is used to describe mountains. That room, they're lifted up. Meaning a mountain is, again, I don't think this is the right uh, uh, grammar. Uh, A mountain is, is, is more room than a foothill. Right? It's, it's higher. It's more lifted up. Uh, we're also told that a heart can be roomed. I don't know if there's a way that you can past tense that, but uh, what does it mean to have a heart that's room? Anybody? We have an English word for that. Arrogant. You're pride. You're prideful. A, a heart that is room is one that looks at others condescendingly, says, I'm, I'm better than you, or at least by way of either verbalizing or by way of action. Uh, that's, we're actually told that's a, that's a bad thing because no one should ever have an elevated heart because when we do that, then we dehumanize other people. We look down upon other people. Uh, we're also told that there, you can have a handful of grain in the Old Testament. The uh, Levites or the religious leaders, they would room the grain that they would have in their hand. They would take this wheat that they just plucked from the field and they would offer it up to God, literally raise it. So it's this idea of like physically raising your hands, either physically or metaphorically, to raise up one's hands to exalt the greatness of God. So listen to how this plays out. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 47, uh, actually, I should say, this plays out in uh, Psalm 145, verse 1. It says, I will extol you, O God. So if you ever wonder, what does the word extol mean? The actual Hebrew word for that English word, extol, that, which, you know, who, who uses the word extol? When was the last time in an English sentence you are like, I use the word extol. Like, nobody uses that language anymore. But the Hebrew word, at least you know, is, is the word room, which means to lift up. I'm lifting up something. In this context, we're told we're lifting up the name of God. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 47 says, The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of the rock of my salvation. So God is exalted. God is lifted high. He's above all things. Uh, listen to how this plays out in Psalm 34, verse 4. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. So flush this out a little bit. Think about this. What does it mean to exalt the name of God? So just take the word exalt or lift up. What are things in our lives right now 
in our experiences that have the propensity to lift themselves up above us, beyond us, meaning they might exercise some imposing power or authority uh, over us. And when we think about these words, they cause us to cower, they cause us to fear, they cause us to be overcome with anxiety. What are some words that we think about? I, I can think of a handful. One might be cancer. Powerful word. What about death? Again, another powerful word. What about uh, divorce? War. I mean, there's a handful of these words. What, what are some other words? Okay, audience participation. What's that? Fired? Yeah, you're fired. There you go. You're fired. Um, what else? I mean, think about, you, there's a lot of words that are part of our typical daily vocabulary or upon the news. And when we hear them, they, they hit us in a particular way where we begin to realize, like, oh my gosh, there is a level of authority and power and lifted highness that that has over me. Do you hear what the psalmist is saying? Is he's basically trying to reposture his heart in light of all of these other words. Death, war, cancer, debt, whatever, what else? What, what other things that he's facing? And what he's basically speaking to himself is he says, let the name of God be exalted above all things. So what is it in your life right now? What are the circumstances that you face that are having some level of power or authority over you? What we have to do, what we have to become better at is training ourselves to think about the name of God, the power of God. God himself is above all those things. Which what it means, what it does, at least in the New Testament sense, we begin to realize that when we look at death, for example, our greatest enemy, in light of God who conquered death, this so is where Paul later would kind of taunt death. He'd be like, death, where's your sting? Right? You, can't, you have nothing on me. You can kill me. You can take my life. But by killing me, so that Paul would say, all you're doing is you're sending me to my ultimate glorious end. Like, How do you conquer somebody that's like, you can kill me, but I win? That's exactly what happens. So what room basically implies is it's a way of exalting, lifting up, raising our hands to the greatness of God. The fourth word that I want to take a look at is the word barak. Let's all say that, barak. All right, so this particular word basically means to look at or to give preference to, to praise, to salute, to set one's attention upon God. This plays out in Psalm 145, verse 1. He says, I will bless your name forever. This is where we get the English word bless. So if you've ever been around any Christian circle for any length of time, you hear the word bless. Sometimes Christians are like, God bless you. Like, like again, this is one of those phrases. What do you mean by that? Like, what does that even mean? How, how, like, again, sometimes we use Christian terminology so much, it loses any degree of meaning at all. So this idea of barak means to bless. Psalm 145 verse 2 says, every day, every day, how Frequently, what's the rhythm of David's life of blessing God? Apparently every day. Every day, I will bless, I will barak God. So what does this mean? It's interesting because this word is, is, might be a little bit different than how you had expected to understand it. In fact, I want to read Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It's the very first time this particular word ever appears in the entire Bible. It reads like this. It says, And then God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and the fowl, and multiply. The very first usage of the word blessing doesn't come from human beings blessing God. It comes from God actually blessing human beings and all creation. Uh, Psalm 
18, verse 46, it says this, The Lord lives, blessed be the rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. When I think about this word blessed, this idea of, of a pronouncing a blessing over somebody or pronouncing a blessing towards God or blessing the name of God, I think that this word is always used within the context of relationship. Um, we might use a word like being very mindful of the person to whom you're blessing. So in this context, Genesis chapter 1, God is radically mindful of what he's just created. He's very aware. You might even want to think of it this way. God looking at, looking into the very eyes, if you would, of his own creation, saying, I'm giving you something. I'm giving you honor and respectability and a place in my good creation to thrive and to flourish. And vice versa, what we do by coming to God, we look at God. We fix our hope, our attention, our eyes upon God. And we come to him and say, God, you alone are worthy of all things. I bless you. I worship you. I love you for who you are. It implies this context of mindfulness. So here's what oftentimes happens. Um, again, I, I think we're, we all fall prone to this. What ends up happening is we might say, I went to church and I worship today. And then we begin to talk about like how long the sermon was or how the band was not one that you really liked, or they played a song that you just were frustrated by, or wasn't in the type of key that you wanted to sing it in, or any number of things that were frustrating. Do you realize that what we're actually describing is an experience in which we came into this worship gathering, not with our eyes on God, but upon everything else? You cannot bless the name in that context. You cannot bless God in that context, because blessing involves mindfulness, being aware of God. So what would it look like for our posture, the posture of our heart, to be one in which when we gather on Sunday, we come together in the community, or when we gather as small groups throughout the week, when we come and we unite with this mindset, with this heart that says, I'm here to focus upon God, who God is, what God is like, what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do, and I will focus my attention upon him, and we will bless the name of God. That's, that's, what it, that's what it means. It's what it begins to take shape or form as. That's what the word Barak basically means. The fifth word I want to look at is the word Hallel. How about, kind of three, we all say Hallel. One, two, three. Hallel. There is an English word, obviously we get from that. Everybody knows this. It's the word Hallelujah. I, I think, honestly, out of all the words that we looked at, this is probably the most familiar out of all the words. And yet, I would even go so far as to say the most under, misunderstood word out of all of these. And, and I'll explain in just a moment. So the word Hallel, Hallelujah, basically means to make a show or to boast and thus to be clamorously foolish. Again, I, I didn't make up any of these definitions. It basically just came from Strong's Concordance and other online tools. Uh, to, and, and thus to be clamorously foolish, to rave or to celebrate. That's what the word halal basically means. And this, again, this is one of those words that I think is highly underrated by how we understand it. So when we use the word halal or we say hallelujah, um, we, I, I think we, we, don't, we don't say it in the context in which the Bible portrays this particular word. Let me give you a couple examples. These are sort of negative examples, but it, this is how the word actually appears. One of the occasions in, when the, in which this particular word, Hallel, appears, well, first let me read the ones out of Psalm 145, because, again, as we're going through Psalm 145, these are the ways in which it appears in here. Psalm 145, verse 2, he says, Every day I will bless you, and I will praise or Hallel your name forever and ever. So whatever he's doing amidst blessing God's name, he's also halaling God, whatever that is. Uh, Psalm 145, verse 3 goes on. It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be halaled, for his greatness is unsearchable. 
So let's take a look at a couple other contexts in which this particular word halal is used throughout the Old Testament. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 15. Uh, it's a really interesting story. It's utilized of when uh, Abraham, if you remember him, he's the father of the faithful. We talked about him earlier. Uh, he ends up going down into the region of, of Egypt, which was sort of like this world militaristic superpower um, of, of planet Earth, or at least of the Middle East. Um, you, didn't, you didn't mess around with Egypt. And so what happens is, is Abraham has a very beautiful wife, right? So he's married. He loves his wife. She's exceptionally attractive, apparently. That's what the scripture tells us. And it's interesting because anytime you read the Bible and it gives you a physical description of somebody, make, make note of that. Because the Bible does not give a lot of physical descriptions of people, if you've, if you've ever noticed that. So if it does give a physical description, there's a reason for it because it plays in the story. So we're told that Abraham's wife is a really, really beautiful lady. So as he goes down into the region of uh, Egypt, we're told within the storyline, it says that the prince of Pharaoh, uh, or sorry, the princes of Pharaoh, so these, these would be you know, Pharaoh's homies, they're hanging out, they're, they're, they're chilling on a street corner, whatever, like um, on the edge of the pyramid, whatever, you know, they, and they see Abraham come into town and they see the most beautiful lady they'd seen in a long time, right? So they do what a bunch of, I, I envision these guys, they're, they're powerful, right? They're princes of Pharaoh. And uh, usually with, with power also comes excesses, which, you know, in my mind, I, I envision these guys, again, I'm making all this stuff up, it's not in the text, but I imagine these guys are powerful, they probably had a little bit too much to drink, so they're, they're drunk, they're like, like a fraternity, and they're, they're, they're objectifying Abraham's wife. And here's what it goes on to say, listen, it says, and then they commended her before Pharaoh. The word commend is the word halal. They halaled her. Before Pharaoh. So again, the story is these young, rich, powerful, probably drunk dudes hang out in street corner over spring break, their little fraternity, objectifying Abraham's gorgeous wife. They go to Pharaoh, they're like, oh my gosh, we found the most amazing woman. You gotta bring her to your harem. She's insane. Doing exactly what stupid guys do when they have a little bit too much to drink and they are even drunk in their own power and authority. They objectify somebody. They're praising her. They're going over the top in their objectification of her. They're halaling her. Follow? Next analogy is 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 13. This is an interesting story. Again, a little bit of backstory. David, King David, if you're familiar with him, he was the, 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 the king of Israel. Um, so he was appointed by God to be king, but there was another king in place. His name was King Saul. And uh, so, so David ends up kind of going on the run because there's, in essence, two kings in Israel. One is sort of the inauthentic king, Saul, and then there is the authentic king, David. But Saul wants to kill David. So David's literally on the run for his life. So he knows he can't live in the region of Israel without, without you know, having to face Saul and obviously die. Um, so what David does is he goes to some of the enemies. He, so he goes to like a surrounding uh, enemy tribe or camp outside of the region. Now again... Uh, imagine being a, a Jew living in the ancient Middle East and you're, you're not at home in your, in your hood. So you're, but you also know if you're going to go to the surrounding tribe next door, they happen to be ISIS. So it's like if you walk up, you're like, hey, what's up, guys? I'm a good Jew. I love you know, Yahweh. And can I, can I live here? They're like, no, we're going to kill you. So, so David does something really unique. Listen, listen to what it does. Listen to what happens. The story tells us. First Samuel chapter 21, verse 13. David, when he comes up into this region of the enemies of Israel, it says that he changed his behavior before them. 
It says, he feigned himself mad, and he scrabbed at the door, scratched at the doors, and he, uh, doors of the gate, and he let spit run down his face upon his beard. So what's happening here is David is literally acting like he's a madman. So any form of sanity, David turns it inside out and says, I'm going to act insane, because they're not going to, certainly they're not going to kill an insane guy. A guy that is crazy, is a nutcase, he's drooling on his face, and he's scratching at the door. They're not going to kill me if I act like I'm an insane person. But listen to what the word is. It says, and he feigned himself mad. The word feigned himself mad is literally the Hebrew word halal. So what's, what's, how does this play into the whole bigger picture? The word halal basically means to exaggerate, overemphasize, in some ways go crazy, to emphasize something to this over-the-top expressiveness. So do you understand sometimes when, if in the context of church stuff, someone says, guess what? My debt of $10 million was totally canceled. And your response is, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Like that, that, is, that, is, that is, we've completely underestimated, undervalued what the word hello means. It's this radical, over-the-top expressiveness of who God is. Listen to what Psalm 18, verse 3 says. It says, I will call upon the name of the Lord, who is worthy to be hallowed. And he says, so shall I be saved from my enemies. So the question is, is what happens if you know you're going to be saved from all of your enemies? Praise the Lord. It's a good day today. Like, no, not at all. You would be over the top. I mean, think of the Ewoks when they realized they were no longer under the threat of the evil. They celebrated. This is over-the-top expression of God's greatness because God intervened and he delivered. This is what we see happening here. So, that's the word halal. Let's jump on down to number six. It's the word shabach. Shabach. Let's all say that. You got you to get the shabach. One, two, three. Good. Shabach. Okay, this particular word appears in Psalm 145, 4. It says this, one generation will praise your works to another. They will shabach your works to another generation, and they shall declare your mighty acts. This basically means to address in a loud, firm tone, um, either figuratively or literally, to commend to another generation. In this particular context, it's from one generation to the next. It's this idea of recognizing, I will pass on what I have now, what I know now about who God is and of his faithfulness, of his fidelity to the next generation. I want to make sure that the next generation, that I have some level of responsibility and influence, I want to make sure that they know everything that they can know from my lips about the faithfulness of God. Does that make sense? So again, for all of us, we have spheres of influences. If you're a dad... If you're a mom, you, you, you realize this involves what this looks like. It looks like you being radically hands-on with your kids and shabachim to them what the glories and the goodness and the greatness of who God is so that they can never look back and say, they never told me about how God is great. I never learned this. Because let me put it this way. What we have and what we live in is we live in a culture that is constantly shabachim something. They're shabachim the glory of a variety of whatever you can even think of, right? Late night commercials that are trying to sell you on something. And at the end of the day, if we do not shabach, if we do not communicate or commend, shout loudly to the next generation of who God is and what God is great like, then what will happen, there will be another voice that will come along and will shout to them the greatness of things that are fading away. 
that have a glory, but the glory fades. The glory has an expiration date that will one day fade away compared to the glory of God that will never fade away. Let me say this. This is one of the reasons why, for example, we do our baptism on a Sunday morning at church for our church service. Like there are many years we would do baptisms throughout the year, like on a Saturday, and we had a handful of people that show up and come out. And then we decided, you know, it'd be actually kind of cool to like have church at the beach because why not? How rad is that? But at the same time, it, this is something to be, this is about shabachim, the glory of God, the goodness of God to the next generation. It's one of the reasons why we are constantly encouraging families, especially don't use this as an opportunity to be like, ah, church is a little bit more inconvenient to go to this week, so we'll kind of ditch out uh, out of convenience. Whatever. We always encourage you to think about this. This is a really unique opportunity to bring your kids in to feel, to sense, to hear, to watch all of the circumstances that are happening. Whether they're watching someone cry while they give their testimony or running into the water and then they see them celebrating and they ask you, why are they going into the water? Why are they crying? Why are they? Then you have this unique opportunity to shabach to them the greatness of God and what God is up to in people's lives. This is what we see with this particular word. So we move on to the very last word I want to finish with this. It's the word todah. The word todah. This is, a, again, another one of those really quite amazing words. It means to offer praise and thanksgiving to God. Often, this is where it gets pretty interesting, often prior to receiving the benefit, based upon the character of the giver. So it's the idea of basically paying up front homage based upon someone's good character. You follow? Are you guys okay? All right, just want to make sure. We want to make sure we are not sleeping in the midst of halal moments. All right, so here's the point of the matter is, is this, it's, a, it's a moment to declare, to offer praise and worship, even when the deliverance has not yet transpired. You get this? What this looks like on a very practical level, and I would even go so far as to say this, if you get this particular word, todah, and you implement this, you practice this in your life, this will change your experience with God for the better. Because what this looks like, it looks like us giving worship and praise to God even before we get what we long for. For some of us, there are hopes and dreams. It's a human experience for us to desire certain things, to hope for things, to have a heart set upon certain things. And some of those might be good things, like marriage or a job or buying a house or whatever. And sometimes we don't get those things right away. And yet, hope deferred sometimes can cause a heart to get sour and hardened and bitter. And sometimes there are other circumstances in our life where we want deliverance from something and deliverance has not happened or come yet. We find ourselves in the midst of that complex milieu of brokenness and shame and hurt and these cycles of destruction that we find ourselves in. And perhaps one of the most important things for you to do in those moments before deliverance from those moments come is to lift up your voice and give God thanks for the deliverance that's coming. To give God thanks, to worship him for the healing that's on its way. Either in this life or being healed in an ultimate sense by being in his presence. The point of the matter is this, is that this is about worshiping God even in the moment of great destruction in our lives. Listen to how this plays out in other Old Testament passages. One of my most favorite, I have it up on the screen, I just want to listen to it. It's the story of Jonah. So some of us, I think we misunderstand the story of Jonah. In fact, I'd almost go so far as to say that every single kid's story 
that represents Jonah actually misrepresents Jonah. They have a horrible job at describing what the story of Jonah is about. Jonah is not an example to follow. Jonah was a really bad man. He ran away from God. He was constantly disrespectful to what God is up to in this world. He was trying to emancipate himself from God. He literally was a rogue prophet. He was the exact opposite of what a prophet should be. And Jonah goes so far of running away from God that God actually traps him, captures him in the belly of this fish. And here we see in, Genesis, or in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah's literally in the belly of this great fish. His life as he knows it is totally over. I mean, imagine he's in the belly of this great fish. And I imagine in my mind, there's like gastrointestinal juices floating around and there's beaks of animals down there and scales and wrapped in all sorts of seaweed. It just absolutely smells. It's horrible. It's hot and damp. It's just a horrible place to be. And here's Jonah. Listen to what he says. In the midst of this literal dilemma, he says, I will sacrifice unto you the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. I don't know about where you're at, what types of circumstances you're facing, what types of deliverance you need to have happened in your life, what types of ways in which you have hopes but they had not come to fulfillment yet. What are the circumstances you're facing? How far down you may have fallen, maybe by way of circumstances that were totally outside of your control or circumstances that you brought upon yourself because of your own rogue state. The most amazing thing is to, in those moments, cry out to God and worship Him even before the deliverance comes. That's what this particular word, tada means. Listen to how this plays out in the book of Jeremiah, and I'm done here. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 11 says this, The voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voice of them shall say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever, and bring sacrifices of praise into the house of God, for I will cause to return to captivity of the land as at the first, says the Lord. And in the context of Jeremiah, when he wrote this, the people of Israel had suffered literally what was akin to their own 9-11. Their nation was destroyed. Their entire life was disrupted. Everything that was valuable to them was gone. Their temple was raised to the ground. Everything that they had known that was normal and common was completely upended. And what Jeremiah the prophet suggests, worship God in spite of all that's happening. Do you realize that's when worship oftentimes is the most costliest? I'll give you an example, and I'm done. When, well, I don't know, about three or four years ago, some of you guys know the story, I had this circumstance that I had this thing growing on my throat, and I didn't know if it was cancerous, and it was a really traumatic time for my life. It was a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety that was being created within my own heart, you know, as, as, as a dad and as a husband, I'm trying to keep it together, also as a pastor of church. But I also realized that there were these moments where I would just break down. I'd break down with my wife. I had no idea what the future held because the reality is, is if something happens to my throat, my vocal cords, and I have cancer, and either A, I'm going to die, like worst case scenario, best case scenario, they, you know, remove whatever it is that's on my throat, and I can't talk again, that'd be kind of a bummer because I'm not really sure what I would do with my life if I can't do the very thing that I'm always doing, which is talking. And uh, so it was, it was this radically disruptive moment in my life. And, and I would come to church on Sunday, and there was a season of time where I couldn't talk. Like, I literally, I carried this little board 
uh, that I would write stuff down, and people, and coming to church is actually hard, because everyone's coming up, and they're like, hey, how's it going? And they're like, uh, horrible, actually. My life sucks right now. Um, here's, let me spell it out. It's S-U-C-K. It's just, it's not good. Like, but thanks for asking anyways. So I, I, I and I couldn't even sing. I mean, that, that's, like, I could not use my vocal cords for a lengthy period of time. And I would come, and during the worship, uh, I, w- I would, and I'm like, do I, do I mouth it? Because then that looks kind of fake. Like, I'm, I'm not going to just mouth it. So in my heart, I would just sit there and sing. One song we would sing oftentimes, um, All the Earth Shall Praise Your Name. And I just remember over and over again just singing the song, being like, I'm going to praise God even if I don't have a voice. That's, that's tada. That's what it means to trust God. And again, I'm not, not looking, don't, don't necessarily take away, like, follow that example. Like, like I, I was imperfect. There were moments where I did not want to do that. But in the moments where it was most costly for me, I had to, like, f- bring that sacrifice. It cost me something. It was painful for me to do that. And honestly, to be, I, to be, I, I didn't want to come to church because it was a painful reminder that I cannot, I, was, I felt alienated. I felt alienated within the very church that, that I planted amongst the very people that I love. And I, I can't enter in to dialogue or conversation because of this, this thing I'm dealing with. So I'm going to tada. I'm going to worship God for the greatness of who he is in spite of the fact that there's a lot that I cannot enter into right now. And the invitation for all of us is to worship God. So again, back to the very beginning. I'm not sure how you think about the word worship or how you've come to understand it. My hope would be that this would at least paint somewhat of a more fuller framework for us to think about the experiences that we have of worshiping God. So we're going to respond now. I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and we're going to go to the table and eat the bread and drink the cup and be reminded of who God is and what God has done for us, because that's, that's, that's how we begin. Again, it starts with God initiating something, and worship is the human response. So this is where, where you come in. Worship does involve you. It involves us responding to what God has initiated And this is where the good news becomes really good news because God initiates his love to us in that even while we are yet sinners, rebels, running from God, pushing away from God, seeking to emancipate ourselves from God, God presses into our world and takes upon himself suffering that was due to us and in its place gives us life. So I'm not sure where you're at, what types of circumstances you're wrestling with. My hope would be that we would press in and worship God in ways that align with who he is. So how about we all stand? I want to pray for us. If you're here this morning, and maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you are going through a a circumstance where what was talked about today really resonated and harmonized in some profound ways, you recognize the chaos in your own life, and you're praying that God would bring some level of order, I want to pray for you. So again, if you're not a Christian, or you're just in this profound chaotic state, I want to pray for you. And you can just repeat after me in your own heart, uh, these, these words as I, as I pray, and then we'll just continue to sing and worship together, and we'll wrap this up. So let me pray. Let's bow our heads and our hearts before God, and I want to invite you to pray along with me if that's, that's you. So God, right now, I commit my heart to your care. God, in a state of chaos and hurt and brokenness and loneliness that I find myself, I ask you, Jesus, would you just come and make your presence known? And even if I don't sense or see or feel anything about you, God, give me the ability to worship you for who you are. 
So I repent and turn from my false understandings, my sinful ways, and I turn to you, Jesus, by way of trust and confidence and loyalty. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray.